0: Hello and welcome to episode three of BIM There, Done That, our careers podcast for BIM Manchester. Uh, today I'm going to be talking to a good friend of mine, uh, a lovely guy with a fascinating history and that is John McCready, who's our course leader for music journalism and course leader for music, marketing, media and communications. John's got an amazing history uh, working for the Enemy and The Face and Melody Maker, writing liner notes for albums, books, all sorts, he's a great person, he's an interesting person, and if ever that adage, you know, to be interesting, be interested, Um, John, John is that person. So, um, without further ado, let's get into it. How are you doing? I'm all right, Damien. How are you? I'm not bad. I'm about seven out of ten today, I think.
1: Yeah, I'd say maybe maybe eight and a half. I've got some vegan bounty chocolate. I'm enjoying it at the moment. You can't have any, obviously. (laughs) No. (laughs) I'll put it in the post. It's £3 a bar.
0: Vegan bounty sounds like a a shop in Hebden Bridge. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, the scones look good today. (laughs) Obviously, we're going, to have a, we're, we're going to go all over the place with this, but we're going to try and keep to some sort of theme, which will be your career, hopefully, um, and a bit of an overview of where you've been with it and how you got into it and all that. I was going to ask you, first off, really, I think everyone I know who either writes about music or plays in a band or manages bands or runs late, whatever they are, they started off with that obsession just about being a fan like being fanatical, literally fanatical about something. So what was that first thing that you were like fanatical about that made you go, oh yeah, music?
1: I think it's absolutely true when people talk to you about different parts of a career. And lots of us have done lots of different things, but it's always back to an obsession with music. You know, and anything that you have to do, you want to kind of you know, steer it towards that. But um, my dad's really, I suppose play records in the house yeah. where we were growing up. And I was telling somebody the other day um, when we first had records in the house, like a huge old wooden radiogram, and the records were stored in there. You didn't care what they were. Music was just something that was there. And it could be a Mrs. Mills album or a Chet Atkins album, or it could be a Mark Bowler record or a Slade record. But you would play any records. There was a joy in putting records on. And there was a joy in those uh, record players that had those things where you could put 10 on together and one would drop down after another, like an automated way of playing them. And there'd just be music on all day in the house. And it was just uh, built from other people's obsessions. You know, lots of people talk about older brothers and older sisters with cool music tastes. For me, it was my dad and listening to country music and all kinds of stuff, really, that at the mm. time, you know, as I got a bit older and punk came around, I was like, I'm not listening to any of that anymore. But um, now, of course, I go back to loads of stuff like Hank Laughlin and Charlie Pride, and, you know, people like that, Patsy Cline, and I see the value in it and yeah. I see how, it, you know, it's um, still it still has an influence on me. So, yeah, from my dad's, really, a passion yeah. for music.
0: It's interesting you're talking about... Um you know, music you hear as a kid that you kind of slightly dismiss as well. You think, well, that's not my music, because my music is, is this. And then you end up going back to it. I, I had that with my older... I've got an older brother and sister, like 14 years older than me, and they listened to jazz funk, and I thought it was rubbish. <laughs> now I'm like... You go back and dumb. find it, don't you? Yeah. Even, yeah. Show me that Maze album, I'm having it on, it's fine.
1: (laughs) Things like Spotify have enabled us all to do that really easily, haven't they? You know, you will find absolutely everything. And, you know, there was even, like, a terrible um, soporific programme on Sunday evenings after the Pop Chart Show with Alan Freeman called Sing Something Simple with the Mike Sam Singers, and it was so depressing after the number one was T-Rex or Slate. Yeah. And that would come on and it'd be like, oh, it's school tomorrow, <laughs> really depressing. But I've sought those things out and stuff and played yeah. them. And it's obviously all to do with memory, isn't it? You know, yeah, nostalgia exactly. and stuff like that. It brings, you know, particular memories back. But yeah, lots of good memories of music yeah. being around the house. And they were very tolerant of music around the house as well. Mm. You know, I remember, as you probably do, blasting all kinds of stuff out of my bedroom, and the being brilliant about it, you know, and yeah.
0: saying, oh, "Just turn it down a bit, not yeah. turn it off ever," yeah. which I think was key, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. Funny enough, we, we've like I say, my brother's a bit older than, a fair bit older than me, and we were talking last year and going, "What, you know, is there a record that sends shivers down your spine?" Like well, he said, "Well, yeah, unexpectedly, it's Percy Faith uh, theme from a summer place." I said, "That's mine." How, how have we both got that? And it was like my mum used to play it. And we totally, we hadn't related it to that until we said, oh, yeah, there's that that record that, like, you know, it's not a hip record. it's a, Not at all, no. But it's just one of those, something about music that just makes you go, it takes you back to a place in time or comfort or yes. whatever. Which brings me to, I guess, why, what made you want to write about music rather than being a band or write music? What was it about writing?
1: David, I would have loved to have been able to write a song. I'm so frustrated by the complete lack of talent in that respect. (laughs) And God knows I tried as a kid and I had, you know, uh, guitars were bought for me and stuff and I'd sit there and there was a sheer emptiness in your head when it came to that. That was so depressing for me because I would have loved to do that. So I'm a frustrated participant in terms of being a writer about music. But there was a real um, thread in the family of, writing ability you know apparently goes back three or four generations and never professionally explored just something that people could do they were good communicators yeah. and they were good my dad was brilliant at writing letters of complaint <laughs> to people and that was how he explored his ability and he he would say to us you know he'd write a letter to a local shop or something you know where he'd got um, a loaf of bread that had machine oil in it or something like that and he'd go yeah. read that letter i've just written and I'd read it as a teenager and go, too many big words in it, and that's not right. And he'd go, give us it back. <laughs> but he lived really vicariously through me being a writer. Yeah. To the extent where when I started writing for NME, um, he didn't take much notice, seemingly, from my point of view. Of thinking, I've been doing all kinds... But um, he worked at the local council, and my brother did as well. And my brother heard, heard him in the canteen showing off about me. And he was saying things like, oh, John, when he gets off a plane in America, uh, they give him $10,000 in cash. John says, what's that for? And he, they go, mine and expenses. And this was sheer fantasy, yeah. you know, about this idealized kind of almost a thing about him. And my mum used to laugh because he'd, re- he'd, he'd pick up the enemy that was in the house when I was writing for it. Yeah. My mum would see him staring at his own name on the page and, and saying, it's not you that, you know, but it, he's John McGready as well, obviously, yeah. you know. But, <laughs> um, yet there was a talent in the family, really, that was never, you know, as I say, professionally explored, mm. but I put kind of two things together, frustrated as a musician, really useless. Yeah. Uh, and thinking I have to be part of this and my way of being part of this was to write about it.
0: So wh- wh- how were you writing about it initially? What was your... Were you just going to gigs and writing your own thoughts down or writing letters to music press? What was your first step into that?
1: Well, there was a, a free newspaper in Liverpool that my auntie worked for in the advertising departments and they were looking for a trainee as a, just as a journalist, yeah. you know. And it, Those things had huge... Um, you know, readerships at the time. You know, it was about three, four 400,000 people that it would be distributed to every week. And she said to the guy who was editing it, oh, johns he's, he's a writer, he can write. And they dropped me in the deep end with it, but I kind of survived as a journalist, a job in journalist, not writing about music. But because I behaved myself, <laughs> they gave me a pop column yeah. in it. And I have some uh, clippings of this and they're absolutely hilarious. i would never shared them because they're so bad. Because I had a point to prove uh, yeah. big words here, there and everywhere were, you know, five words where one would do because I really needed to show that I could do this because I had no formal qualification but like O-levels. So I used to do that and slag off all kinds of different things in Liverpool. The people used to invite me to come and be nasty about Pete Burns from Dead or Alive. He was like, I'm playing on Wednesday. Why don't you come and slag us off? It would be really funny. You know, <laughs> so, so there's, like, yeah. to...
0: there's a direct line there from your dad's letters of complaint through to the bad reviews, isn't there? It's... <laughs> Moaning scousers. But it's more <laughs> fun to write a, a bad review than a good review, surely.
1: It's easier. Yeah, mm. absolutely. The hard thing to do is to write positively. That's so hard to do, to make it um, something uh, more than boring, ultimately. But yeah. from that, I used to go to loads of gigs in Liverpool around. It would be like eighty three, eighty four, eighty five. Uh I had a ball, you know, seeing all these things coming through. It was kind of post the whole trendy Eric's thing, and you yeah. know, the, the things people know, like teardrop explodes and stuff. But it was the time of things like the Lars and stuff like that, you know, so Half Man, Half Biscuit, stuff like that. But I used to go to all the gigs and I'd write reviews for my own column in in this newspaper, little pop column. And I'd also, uh, because I wanted to write for Enemy, because I was obsessed with Enemy when I was a kid, I used to buy it on a Wednesday, walk home reading it from the newsagents and once walked into a lamppost (laughs) because I had it in front of me, couldn't see. and. I always say to people you would read that the whole week it was brilliant it was so inspiring and some of the writers in there you know were real heroes to me but um, I used to send my reviews anything that I did to Danny Kelly at enemy, who was the live reviews editor and ended up going on to um, found things like Sport 360 and all that kind of stuff he's a really well established media player you know Um, and i didn't bother him. And I always suggested this to students as a strategy. I never bothered him. I just, And I did it for about, maybe about three months. And I just, just used to put it in the post because there was no email and not even any fax at that particular point. It'd be about 82, 83. Um, no, a bit later. But anyway. Um, and I just kept sending them. But I'd put my name at the bottom and I'd put the telephone number at the bottom. And one day... And I thought, this is the way I'm going to work it. I'm not going to bother him about it. He rung me up and said, what the F do you think you're doing? You keep sending me these reviews. I'm not commissioning you. And I can't (laughs) pay you for them. And I said, well, you know, I just thought you might like to see them. And he said, well, they're really good, yeah. He said, you know, give us 200 words on candy opera or something like that. So I started writing for Enemy out of the pop column as a result of just sending stuff to... And I would recommend that to students as a strategy. Don't mind the people. Don't expect an instant response. You know, people are just busy. And let them come to you. You know, if the work is good, they will, absolutely. They won't miss an opportunity to engage with a capable writer, you know.
0: Yeah. So um, you were getting paid for these, so, so that's... That's the first paid work, I guess, is it? Well, I was, I
1: was employed by the newspaper as a, as a journalist, yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, and I just love the fact that you've got loads of free records and stuff. But yeah, enemy was my first national paid gig, yeah. Mm. So doing like, as a rookie rookie from Liverpool, and they used to have at the point, that point somebody in all the major cities. They'd have a stringer in Glasgow, one in Newcastle, and one in Liverpool, and one in Manchester. I think Dave them in Manchester was parallel to me at that particular point. Yeah. And he would ring you up every week and go, What's going on where you are? And I'd go, Well, this these lights called Half Man, Half Biscuit, and this really funny record. And they'd go, All right, give us, you know, 800, 800 words on that. Yeah. No guidance about what they wanted. You know, the way that we would now plan and yeah. go, Okay, if we're going to do a masterclass interview, what are we going to ask and how are we going to mm. structure what we're doing? Mm. It'd just be like, Go and have a chat with them and
0: see what happens. And it's quite interesting. I I remember talking to... um, In fact, it was a load of BIM students a few years ago now. We're talking about Manchester, you know, and the kind of... And I remember saying, do you think that could happen again? I said, well, no, I don't think it could really because, like with the Liverpool scene, it had time to develop and be something. Like it was ready to pop. It was like, you know, it just stated and was ready... And, with, and then became a thing, rather than being a one band dribbling out the sun half-light, yeah. it was, like, fully formed, wasn't it? That, it's I remember quick. that scene. Yeah,
1: Too quick, yeah. no. you know, you would see early doors, things like the Lars in Liverpool, when they weren't very good, mm. you know, at the Pen and Wig or something, which was like a pub, you know. And you'd be thinking, interesting, but, you know, let's see what happens. So they were allowed the space to grow and yeah. to experiment and to explore before... They were actually found and as a result they were much stronger when they at that, at that point when they actually were discovered
0: yeah yeah and then they've got there's that thing with bands at the moment which is they get seen a bit too early and when they're, they're still developing a sound when they find their actual sound they lose an audience because actually they were, they were never that band they were this they're actually this band
1: so um, i can think and i'm sure you you could think far more than me spring to mind immediately at least five people in Manchester who you wouldn't name because it's such a shame to discuss that yeah. you saw and thought, incredible, what's yeah. going to happen with that? And it just kind of, you know, drifted and melted. Yeah,
0: yeah. now I can think of, I'm immediately thinking of, yeah. of, of quite a few of them through the 90s, well, through the 2000s, actually, even in the past sort of 10 years, there's been quite a few. Great people, like
1: and absolutely, you know, uh, prodigiously mm. talented you know, songwriters and performers and, and they just are people that hang around now yeah. and seeing lovely people but it just didn't work,
0: you know. So going back to though the to the the early eighties and you right in front of me, I mean it kind of gives you also some power there because these these kind of missives aren't getting out without people like you because there isn't an internet and there isn't you know, you are you're the people who are, are saying this is happening here.
1: I don't think you you 100% had the power to make somebody, but I take the point, and I agree, you know, there was a large degree of power that you had. To the extent where bands would ring you up and go, can we set up a rehearsal for you? And you'd go to the rehearsal room, and you'd be sat on a chair on your own, and you'd be playing furiously the whole set to try and get you to write in a local newspaper or write 200-word live review in enemy because it was, uh, you know, a foot in the door. So you did have a, uh, you know, degree of power. And I wonder whether, in my case, it went a little to my head, you know, (laughs) because I would kind of take the piss a lot and stuff like that. You know, fell out with loads of people. Because I just, I don't know what, I think it was more to do with, I felt there had to be some integrity about it. Probably pretty stupid personally, but um, if I didn't like somebody, and I was friends with the people who made the music I didn't like. I would feel obliged to say this is terrible, yeah, and and fall out with them. Which to me now, as a you know, a grown adult, seems ridiculous. You know, you could you could choose not to write about something. You know, yeah. and all all opinions are subjective. You know, it's just your. Take on a particular thing, but yet yeah, there was some sense of power there, absolutely. Mm. And the, it was only you writing for NME You know, there might be somebody writing for Melody Maker, and you were the, the cipher. You know, you were the route to a record label or an A and R person reading that in London and go, "Interesting, I'll get a be jacket head up the motorway." You know,
0: the um, it's interesting actually because you don't really see terrible review if there is a bad review of someone it's all over social media like look what someone wrote about this which is a a shame in a way Um, and I guess it's that polarization of that social media kind of brews but you don't get so many honest it tends to be a little bit cut and paste press release stuff at the moment doesn't it What, what advice do you give to students particularly about honesty in reviews.
1: You know, it's really interesting that, because I did a tutorial with a a big Manchester student yesterday who was working on a project and asking me some questions about writing, and she had a really interesting question. I think you spoke to the same person, actually. She mentioned you. and She had a really interesting question along the lines of, do you think people now lack courage? Because if you say something about a band that have some fans, you'll get piled on on social media, you'll even get people yeah. threatening you, you know. Yeah. And I never had that. I could say what I wanted. And there was no there was no routes or channels for people to respond to that in the way that there are now with social media. The only thing there was was an enemy letters page. Mm. You know, so um, people could... always fascinated me that people would bother to write a letter, go to the post office, buy a stamp, put it in a letterbox. I think, how much do you really care? But even that was edited by somebody every week who would take, you know, out of whoever had written written in. You know, it was just an opportunity to have a pop of people, really. It was never taken seriously. And I think writers now probably do feel compromised by the possibility of social media you know, sort of piling in on you if you write a review of the
0: 1975 and say, I don't think they're very good. Yeah, yeah. It's a a really interesting... I mean, obviously being in the world myself of managing bands and you don't like reading a negative review. I mean, thankfully I've not seen that many of my bands, but there has been a couple where you think, hang on, that's a seven out of ten. It's the only seven out of ten out of all the reviews, which is a brilliant thing. Seven out of ten is great. Yeah. But like the drops a seven out of ten. How can how can that possibly be? You know, and it's even that seems like a, a slight nowadays.
1: And it's this a real is talking point, isn't it? Yeah. When it happens, you know, I've noted a few things recently. There's a chap who is is one of the journalism team on the on the course in Manchester. John Moores, who writes for uh, the Quietus. Yeah. and I think John wrote uh, a review of idols recently and he you know he didn't like it and John could be really funny in the way he talks about the fact that he doesn't like it but you couldn't miss the controversy on social media about that yeah. because it now happens so infrequently that people feel they have enough courage to be honest about what they think about something when they don't like it. You know, people will avoid it, you know, and people... A lot of people now, it's unfortunate, they just want free tickets and they want free access to the music and stuff like that. So they want to get along with people. And I'm always about encouraging people to be a a little bit more intrepid than that, you know. And we certainly have a few journalists on the course in Manchester who are tuning into that way of thinking, and it's good to see.
0: Just uh, moving back to uh, you and your career trajectory let's get back to that i'm quite interested in uh, let's talk about you john um the face which i've always thought was a really interesting publication i've still got a load of copies of it knocking around and when i look back at it it was actually a lot better than i remembered it being in many ways it was it felt a bit light and fashiony at the time but actually I go back now and I think, God, those interviews are really good, the writing is really good, the photography is brilliant and everything about it, the design, layout, is absolutely fantastic. So when did you start working? um, You did a bit of work for The Face. and I did quite a lot for The Face, yeah. So when when was that?
1: Um, About 1987 into 88. I was writing quite a lot for NME and I was writing a lot about... um, Dance music stuff at the time, which yeah. always amuses me that people think that Enemy never covered dance music. It was all mm. indie. And I used to write about Salt and Pepper and Bismarcky mm. and God knows what else, you know, KRS one big long form interview speeches yeah. in the same way that the Smiths would get. And it's all in there for people, you know, to go back through an archive yeah. and find. I would recommend a guy actually on Twitter called Nothing Else On who archives week by week. Enemy and melody maker, page by page, right. and you see what the coverage actually was. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Some of it's old fashioned. Some of it, you know, doesn't really play anymore. But I was freelancing really for Enemy, and I was living in Liverpool, and then moved to Manchester in 1990. So still in Liverpool, um, I'm going to London a lot, staying with people at Enemy on the staff who were lovely to me. You know, people like Stuart Cosgrove. And Danny Kelly would just give me keys to their flats and go, Anytime you're down, I might be there, I might not, here's a key, you can, you've got somewhere to stay. So I, w- I was able to generate quite a lot of work, but I still didn't feel I was earning as much as I needed to. And I thought, well, I've got to diversify. So I started writing for ID Magazine.
0: Yeah.
1: And there was a great editor there called John Godfrey, who wrote a really good book about club culture, Name escapes me, but fantastic writer and a really encouraging. you. Editor, and I was writing for City Limits in London, which was kind of like a London listings magazine. And I was writing for Radio Times, and I was writing for the Face, and I did a lot for the Face. And yeah. it, it was my thought was, I should be able to work for anybody I want to if I'm freelancing. Mm. I need to, you know, potentially earn as much money as I need to earn. And some of them got a bit annoyed about that. NME a little bit annoyed about that. When you're working for the Face, well, you know, you can't really work for us. So it was like. Well, fine, I'm off, you know, you can't box me up like that. It's not It's not really fair, you know, mm. unless you're giving me a staff position whereby I earn enough not to work for other people. So yeah, about 1987, uh, with an editor called Cheryl Garrett, amazing woman who was so brilliant for me as a writer, because I had no tuition really and the only thing you could do in terms of a journalism qualification at the time was a an NCTJ the Journalists Union course like a 10 week course in yeah. Preston and it was just about typing and shorthand and stuff like that you know not in the way that we do it now when we yeah. talk about features and you know we have an amazing course in Manchester and in the other colleges as well she was the first person who really pushed me you know And there were good people at NME, like Adrian Thrills and uh, Danny Kelly and Stuart Cosgrove. But she would go, okay, you've written this, what else can we do with it? What about this bit? What about that bit? And At first I reacted by saying, really, that's it. But she would make me work, you know, and rework and stuff like that. And ask me why I'd chosen to, to look at it in this particular way. And and amazing as an editor, you know, and I learned so much and I grew so much during that time. Really open-minded about stuff. Another, uh, you know, stereotypical cliche about that time was that the face is all about London. Nothing, you know, it's just Mm. all London-centric. And they weren't, you know, they were looking for anything, anywhere. And she had me writing loads of stuff about things in Liverpool and Manchester. A brilliant idea that she dragged out of me, because I just used to speak to her once a week and she'd say have you got any ideas? And I'd go don't think so. She'd go well what have you been doing this week? And I'd just start shuddering on about (laughs) loads of stuff. And she'd go well isn't that a story? And isn't that a story? And I learned that journalistic thinking from her. And you know things like, um, there was one called Scally's Rally to Pink Floyd because they'd noted that you know, football kids were getting into progressive rock and stuff because it was largely associated with smoky dope and stuff like that, you know, but there were were fantastic things like that, like little city scene stories. She was so open to that and um, she was brilliant to me because she gave me loads of work. I did loads of, you know, fascinating travel around the world as a result of the association with that. And there's a new face, isn't there, currently, and I've not really taken much notice of it, but it's trying to do the same kind of things that, you know, people like Noisy and Vice and stuff would pick up on those things, you know, a load of kids in in the Lebanon into hip-hop or something like that, you know. Those are fascinating where it's about the music, but it's also about the culture around the music.
0: Yeah. And I think it was an interesting... It's a really interesting magazine. Now you look back on it as well, there's kind of a document to attend... Vaguely, ten-year period, mid-eighties, mid-nineties, that acknowledged early on that music and fashion were very closely linked, which I don't think the enemy really explicitly ever did. It was sort of anti-fashion in a lot of ways, but you know, with the face, it was like you can be into this and you can look like this and try and. I used to love some of the. I remember they did a thing on uh, like the rockabilly scene and all that and I thought right I've got to find out where they get these shirts from got a train down to Camden looking for these shops with these shirts in just thinking this is this is great and now when you look through it it really does like you say it's not London centric particularly it's it documents scenes that probably don't find I don't think I don't know anywhere else that was doing that kind of writing
1: really people copied that you know, because ID's take on it was different. But they would let me do stuff as well. You know, I remember doing the thing about the Manchester hip hop shit scene in nineteen eighty-six,
0: yeah.
1: meeting all these kids in the Wimpy Bar on a Sunday night in Piccadilly Gardens, you know, before anything had really happened. Um, you know, but they they, they were open to those kind of ideas. They also had people like Peter Hooten of The Farm was writing for The Face mm. and there was tons of stuff about Scallies and football culture and Perry Lance and all that kind of stuff and the connection with the music and Cheryl was, was like anything like that I want to hear it and yeah. she would find space for it you know, in different ways. She she kind of uh, was annoyed at me at one stage because, you know, that kind of idea I thought I don't know you know, I was a bit daft really but It was a photographer called Peter Walsh, who worked in Manchester, took loads of pictures at the end of it, and me and him dreamed up a little idea because he worked for The Face as well. We told Cheryl that people, this was a little bit later, people in Manchester were listening to techno and they were going to clubs with toy robots around their necks and on chains and they were on the dance floor and she bought that really, you know, innocently yeah. And we did it, we had pictures of these people with stupid robots <laughs> around their necks going crazy on the dance floor. And we wrote it up and she published it. And then yeah. somebody told her, oh, that's, you know, they're just having a go kind of thing. And she gave me a rocket, you know, for, for you know, at, at doing that, you know. But there's also things like Nick Logan, who ran it. Mm. You know, um, he, he told me off once because I wrote a piece in the face about... Journalism in London, and I said something like, contrary to popular belief, uh, most people who work at the face don't dress uh, fashionably, but in fact look like big men. And he, <laughs> and he called me in his office and said, That's not true. But you know, all that com de garçon thing and yeah, stuff like that, where yeah. they had suits that looked like, you know, a guy in a hardware store (laughs) would wear. To me, it just looked like that. So I got told off, but they were brilliant, you know, absolutely brilliant. And other people took over. Uh, There was a guy uh, called Richard Benson who took over after Cheryl, who was just as good, you know.
0: Um, I want to talk to you about, obviously you mentioned your father there earlier about, you know, obviously people who are influential and what writers were you looking up to when you were getting into writing? And, And... was there anyone who kind of mentored you through what you were doing, or you felt you know was a gu- was a guide for you?
1: Um, yeah, I I just used to with NME, I just used to bob down there on this on the train randomly, you know, just yeah. hang around. And um, I think I was a bit of a novelty, an exotic import, you know. And, <laughs> and people would you know they, they quite like you have, having you around, you know, but they yeah. had all their wars going on and the little battles that are in every office environment, you know. But I didn't have any enemies among them. I got on with all of them in different yeah, ways. Yeah. So, you know, Adrian Thrills, who did all the reviews, who had a really um, key um, punk fancy called 48 Thrills. He'd probably pay about 300 quid for a copy of it now. Uh, really early doors alongside Sniffing Glue and stuff like that. You know, these punk fanzines that explain the culture around the music, as we talked about before. He was great with me, you know, he, he would work with me on my writing, and um, Len Brown was fantastic. Yeah. I ended up working in, te- in television with later when Len was an executive producer making music documentaries at the BBC. Sh- uh, Stuart Cosgrove, who went on to be uh, Scotland's Channel 4 man and, you know, mm-hmm. works in, in media and Scotland talking about sports. Music now, um, and yeah, they were all really open. You know, they were brilliant. Matt Stone, people like that, who you went on. To, I think he used to edit uh, things like uh, Mojo and stuff. But yeah, those, those were all key people, really. In, in, in you know, talking to you about what you liked. I, but well, my real heroes were the people who came before I started to read. Um, I started to write for those papers when I was reading them. In the early 80s, it was people like Paul Morley and Ian Penman and B. McCoff and John Savage, Dave McCulloch. All of these people were were pop stars to me because I was about the writing and not not about being in a band. They were my pop stars. And I read everything that they wrote. And I didn't understand some of it, you know, because I now realised that they were incorporating elements of, you know, French Mm -hmm political and philosophical theory and stuff like that that they didn't quite understand themselves. <laughs> yeah. But there were brilliantly a load of cues for you to follow in terms yeah. of your curiosity. And they'd mentioned you know, uh, Jean Baudrillard or something like that. you go, who is that guy? Oh, I'll go and buy a book. And yeah. you, you couldn't read the book. You couldn't understand what the hell was <laughs> in it, you know. But your mind was being prized open and yeah. it was a forum where they talked about everything and anything and the way they talked about music was really uh, brilliant so much energy and so much attitude and so much courage there's a brilliant book I would recommend people who are interested in music writing in this country to read Uh, I think you can find it It might be expensive now as a second hand book it needs republishing but it's called Ask the Chatter of Pop by Paul Morley and it's a compilation of his articles for Enemy, And they, they're just the funniest thing, you know, going in with people like Phil Collins and Wham and stuff like that and winding them up for an hour and a half, you know, with no sense of anything conventional going on. You know, he must have returned to the office and they'd be going, what the hell have we got here to deal with, you know? Yeah. And just completely out there, you know, Beautiful stuff, though. You know, so incredibly creative. And I'm, I'm always fascinated as to what he's doing. You know, he kind of, I'd heard that he was he was no longer interested in pop music. He's only listening to classical music. Uh, he wrote a biography of Michael Jackson just at the wrong time, you know, <laughs> when all, all of the, you know, the controversy was happening and yeah. people didn't really take any notice of it. But a brilliant writer. I know he irritates a lot of people because some of it is really freeform. Words and Music is a brilliant book, you know. but It's hard to find a full stop. You know, it's like a stream of consciousness, you know, but just such wonderful insights and just such beautiful ways of talking about music. Really inspirational.
0: It's a, it's a really interesting... I, I, you know, obviously, talking about music is... You don't see... Well, I feel I don't see as much... Writing that, reflected, that reflects the conversations that I would have. Like you and I will have a conversation about music. I don't see that in some of the music press I see, particularly, you know, where people will talk in kind of florid terms about a song. Like, really, like, this has changed my life and it's got this beautiful thing and there's this lyric. And if you... Oh, my God, have you heard the way he says... Suddenly says that word in the middle of that like All those things. Um... So going on from mid-90s into the 2000s, like everyone knows, you know, internet took over, blah, blah, blah. But where were you in that point?
1: Mid-90s, I wasn't writing for mainstream music press a lot of the time. I was writing stuff for, like, The Independent, a little bit of stuff for The Guardian, a lot more for Radio Times. Um, lots of, you know, just looking around for... Work, writing about all kinds of mm. stuff. Uh, writing about a lot about television and stuff. Obviously, writing for Radio Times, yeah. and also doing a lot of DJing because I'd started playing at the Hacienda Club in Manchester um, every Saturday mm. in the Gay Trader bar downstairs, which was mm. the alternative place. So you yeah. know, house music upstairs uh, and downstairs, whatever anybody who was playing in there wanted to play great people who used to play there like Dave Rofe who now manages Dubs, uh, just playing hip hop, house, pop, rock, jazz, you know, absolutely anything that you fancied. Um, So I was doing a lot of that really and I was making probably more money from DJing than I was from writing at that particular point.
0: I, I remember, the, obviously, the Gay Traitor in those days and, and getting a bit of respite from the, the, the thudding noises.
1: It was a breather for people, wasn't it? You yeah, they to come down. Yeah. Pe- you know, in the course of an evening, you'd start at about nine o'clock, and at certain points it was open until about four, mm. the Hacienda. In the, you know, I, I was there from about 90 to, to about 94 or five, uh, and people had come downstairs for a break. And they'd want to hear something different, you know. At the beginning of the evening, it was absolutely mobbed. And then most of them would go upstairs and at certain points you'd have one guy asleep, drunk, on his own, you know. And and there were times where, you know, it was just, it really didn't matter what Mm. you played. And I'd say, well, let's see how far we could go, you know. I'd do things like I'd put side two of metal by Pink Floyd on Echoes and leave the whole thing on. And if anybody hasn't listened to that piece of music, it's amazing, but it ebbs and flows so much. You know, it's like a, a roller coaster ride, an absolutely incredible piece of music. Um, and the bar staff would be like, What are you doing? You know, and then at certain points, I'd look at my watch and go, Two o'clock. It's really not that busy. I'll empty it out. I put a few things on to get rid of the <laughs> remainder of the people in there so I can go home, you know, and people think, oh, you want to play all night? No, yeah. you don't sometimes, yeah. you know. You've had enough and you know they've had enough. But it was it was ace, you know, because I, I would go down there at, um, at, say, 9 o'clock and I'd have physically have to carry the records. I'd have like eight boxes with about 100 records in each because you'd need them if yeah. you were till 4 o'clock in the morning couldn't get taxi drivers to help you carry them i used to call taxi drivers and say oh i'm not going i'm just going into town because yeah. if they knew you were going to the hacienda and you had records they knew you'd try and get them to help you carry them down the stairs <laughs> so they wouldn't pick you up um, but that's mad you know when you think yeah. now djs can turn up with a memory stick mm. and if you've got ten thousand yeah. tracks on it you had to physically carry them um, but it was brilliant for me
0: I really enjoyed that it's uh, it, you know I don't want to get too deep into a Hacienda conversation because there's uh, so there's many lot, of them yeah and there's a lot being said but I think one thing I mean I went through a bit of a kind of Hacienda denial period probably in the late 90s and early 2000s like no it wasn't that yeah it wasn't as good as everyone says but no I think back you know you just think there wasn't anywhere like it, and there never has been anywhere like it since. And also the weird stuff about it, which was you've got that massive space, then a cafe where you can get beans and chips at midnight.
1: Suzanne.
0: Yeah, Suzanne. Suzanne's plate, Cafe. Plate a plate of beans and chips. Go downstairs, hear something different. Go upstairs, hear something different again. Yeah. And then back out onto the, the dance floor... And then that space, that amazing space, where you saw all sorts of people walking in. I mean, I've got all of you've got stories. A, I've got some weird stories about you. Know, I've sat sat talking to Nico, not knowing it was Nico for half an hour, like just and just stop you. Oh, it, was, it was crazy. Um, it's been slightly oversold since by certain sort of corporate. I hardly talk interests. about it
1: truthfully. I, yeah. I refuse mostly you know but it, that was a particularly joyful time for me you know I really enjoyed being part of it then but you, there's a whole culture that, yeah and it's both left as a memory really Yeah, you know in my opinion and the Hacienda Classical and all that you know yeah. I, 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 I don't understand I'm no, sorry you know my... that time is gone and I can understand mm. the frustration of a younger generation of people who are like when are all you old people going to leave so we can mm. start to grow you know uh, it is that
0: do you remember there used to be a thing? I think it's still going actually. When when the Ritz was obviously when places were open, called Brutus Gold's Love Train, nineteen seventies night. And I used to laugh at that. I used to go, hey, look, I look at the Brutus Gold Love Train. And I, when all these hacienda tribute nights start coming out, I thought it's going. That's our generation's Brutus Gold's Love Train. <laughs> I don't want it to be. Well, I that was what they there, wanted you know. me to play downstairs. You know, when I, kind of
1: when I was hired, it was like funk. And James Brown and stuff like that. But it inevitably bled into lots of other things, you know. Um, And there was one night down there, I must must kind of share this story before we move on. Um, And there were um, some women who were in their 40s who were obviously landed in the wrong place. They'd probably come out of curiosity and they looked like they should have been in, you know, Piccadilly 21 or something like that. And they sat and they were, I thought, they're a bit odd. And we were sitting listening to what I was playing and then this woman came up and she said hey it's brilliant in here love the, what you're doing here it's like Piccadilly Gold she thought it was like AM radio because I was playing you know things like Horse with No Name by yeah. um, you know who, who, who was that by Don McLean Don... no but you know Woodstock by Matthew Southern Comfort all kinds of stuff and I thought I was cleverly you know, rearranging the context for all these things and stuff, but she was just hearing AM radio. (laughs) I loved it. So, you know, she had a good time. That's brilliant.
0: So just bringing it up to date then, because we're going to run out of time. Um, Still, I know still as passionate and obsessive about music as ever, possibly even more so, I think. And, you know, always looking for new things and old things and things that excite you which is you know important and inspiring for students as well you know because if you the last thing you want is someone teaching you who has got no interest in anything anymore so you know that passion is still with you um and your passion for the written word as well um looking back on what you've done through your career would you have changed anything is there anything any part of your career I thought wow well, you know if I could skip those two years or or are you happy and just think well everything's a learning experience
1: um, broadly yeah you know I think I was very lucky and I think I made the most of the opportunities that were provided um, and you know I, I had some brilliant times you know all of that travel for free mm-hmm. to, to be in Chicago and New York and LA and San yeah. Francisco and not have paid a bean ever to go you know was was amazing um, I do look back at some of the writing, particularly when I was at NME, and think I'd been, I wish I'd been a bit more expansive uh, because I was writing in quite a naive way, really. It was all about whether or not I liked it and how I could describe it. Yeah. And I wished I'd included more kind of cultural thought into it, you know, what it meant and how it connected to society. And the things that we talk about, in teaching journalism. And I'm pleased to see there are a lot of people on my course and on other BIM journalism and music, marketing, media and communication courses who are far more broad in their their thinking about music than I was at the time. And I I mentioned before, people put in, you know, old NMEs back up online and you read them page by page and you read your own stuff. And sometimes I'm like... (laughs) bit naive you know but you can't go back and change it because you were young you know you were yeah. naive
0: yeah and you, you know, it's all about context and 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 all that so are you fairly optimistic about the next generation of music writers
1: absolutely yes um, there are some amazing people on my courses you know who have um, unique takes on things and are already starting to explore that whole idea of the cultural context of music in a way that I wasn't at their ages, you know, Uh, and they're out there and they're going to make an impact undoubtedly.
0: Um, We're going to finish now with the difficult and almost impossible question. Now I briefed you on this earlier about choosing a song and we said, anyone I know cares anything about music, there's no way you can pick one particular track that's like, that's the inspirational song of my life. So we're not going to ask that. But I just think you know, for, to end on a song that means something at the moment, or just enjoying, what what would that what would that song be?
1: Um, in recent times, I, I started uh, exploring in depth, and I will do because I'm obsessive and I don't do anything by halves. Um, the genre of Calypso music. Uh, and particularly the calypso that was made in the 1950s, 60s, through to the early 70s. And uh, it's absolutely fascinating to me because the lyrical content is amazing, really funny, really wordy, really literate, you know, really well written. And It's really joyful, the music as well. It's different to a lot of music that I've listened to in my life. It's kind of like an antidote to things like Joy Division. And yeah, really enjoy listening to that at the moment. And if I could think about a particular track, it would be Lord Kitchener's London is the Place for Me. And if you listen to that, it isn't really a Calypso record, but Lord Kitchener is a Calypso artist. Yeah. And this is a track that um, in legend he wrote on the boat coming over to England from Trinidad as part of the Windrush generation. And it's this really beautiful, innocent idea of what London is going to be. London is the place for me. London, this lovely city. You know, some really gentle thoughts about how wonderful it was going to be to go as part of the Commonwealth, what they referred to as the motherland and the welcome they expected and stuff. And of course, it's really sad that they get to London and, you know, they face, uh, you know, adversity and hardship and racism couldn't get anywhere to live, you know, those, you know, where people would put signs on their doors, no Irish, no blacks, no dogs. Uh, and, you know, the, it leads to a real disappointment for that generation mm. who really open heartedly came to help, you know, they were called to help, to be part of the workforce and stuff like that. Um, so that's a piece of music I'd recommend people listen to. There are some really good compilations as a starting point uh, for Calypso that I know you've explored as well on the Honest John's label a whole series of them and London is the place for me is on there but Lord Kitchener I could go on all day about Lord Kitchener he actually lived in Manchester for um, a time and married uh, a woman from Manchester also and I'm kind of intrigued to find out more about that he lived in Old Trafford and stuff and you knew something about this and I think maybe even your own dad kind of had some knowledge of That era in
0: Manchester and stuff, so fascinating, yeah. There's um, Honest John's a great label, and there's uh, I've just been listening to a load of they've unearthed a load of old gospel. Stuff that's inc- absolutely incredible. Yeah, music
1: you you wouldn't have the time or the money or the energy to do what they do often. I mean, with the Calypso thing, unfortunately, that cost me a fortune because I started with those albums yeah. and I fell down a hole of suddenly arguing online in auctions for 200 pounds 45s and stuff like that. You know, I couldn't get enough of it really. Yeah. And, and it's a whole, um, you know, it's a A mine of music, it's endless, you know what I mean? And there are collectors out there who have been buying that music for, you know, 50 years and stuff. So I'm an ingenue to that, really. But, um, you know, it, it has my attention currently, absolutely.
0: Right. Well, we're going to play out with that, and I'm going to say, John McCready, <laughs> this is your life, John McCready. Da, 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 da. <laughs>
1: Thank you very
0: much. We we could do obviously like about a three hour thing. On we'll this, do another we'll, one. We'll do another one.
1: We'll reverse it, and I'll I'll speak to you in the same way. Because I Woo-hoo. feel like I've indulged myself today.
0: All right, we'll do that. Thank you so much, London, and I'll, I'll uh, finish recording here. Thanks, John. Take care.
1: Bye-bye, yeah. London, this lovely city. You can go to France or America, India, Asia or Australia, but you must come back to London City.
0: Thank you for listening to episode three. I've been there, done that. And I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John there. I mean, we could have talked for hours and we, we do tend to go off on a lot of tangents when we speak. So um, I hope you enjoyed the ramble there. Um, episodes one and two of this podcast are on uh, Spotify and other places where you'll find podcasts too. And look out for episode four when it comes. In the meantime, take care, stay safe, stay sane and all the best. See you soon.